Therapist, author, and grief expert Edie Nathan is back to explore sexual grief, a subject she describes as the response to sexually traumatic events which can occur over the span of one's life. And be sure to listen to the end of this episode for information about upcoming events with Edie Nathan and how to get more information on this topic. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. Edie Nathan is an author, public speaker, and licensed therapist. She is a certified sex therapist, hypnotherapist, and certified EMDR practitioner with more than 20 years of experience. Edie earned degrees from New York University and Fordham University with postgraduate training at the Ackerman Institute for Family Therapy. She practices in New York City. In her expertise as a grief therapist, she interweaves her formal training as a psychotherapist with breathwork, guided imagery, ritual, and storytelling. Trauma, abuse, and grief cause the soul to become imbalanced. The goal of the work is to find emotional calibration or balance to defy the depth of darkness and the grip grief often has on the psyche. She believes that everyone experiences grief throughout their lives. Grief is not just about the death of a loved one, but the losses we experience in life. Grief can be hard to talk about. Edie teaches you to dance with your grief, to know it as a way to know yourself. Whether it is the loss of a loved one or the loss of a limb or the loss of a life you once knew, it is your soul that offers the answers to relief. An essential element of Edie Nathan's practice is to offer clients the chance to combine psychotherapy with a deeper, more insightful, spiritual understanding of the self. She is dedicated to helping people understand their grief cope with the fear and struggle that holds them back, and learn to live fully. Edie Nathan, welcome back to the Genesis, the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm so happy to see you and, and talk with you again. Um, just a few months ago, we met here on the podcast and we talked about grief. And we offer not only an understanding of what grief is and how it can manifest, but also some solutions or skills that can support healing and working through the grieving process. And I know I've gotten great feedback from those episodes and anyone listening who hasn't heard them, they're in our podcast library for Genesis, the podcast. And I believe that they aired in December of 2022. But today we're going to take things uh, a step further and talk about sexual grief. Help us understand what that means. Anyone who doesn't know what it means, you have a good reason why you don't know what it means because it's really a new term. The only time it's ever been used is the sexual grief that one feels after the loss of a partner and the loss of those intimate moments. Working in the field of trauma and grief and being a sex therapist, I began to see uh, like a, a commonality with the people who were coming in to, to work on their stuff. They were stuck and I couldn't figure out why are they stuck? What's going on? Why are there so many blockades to their healing? And healing isn't about forgetting, and I'm sure all of you already know that, right. but really being able to not have your life obstructed because of what you'd gone through. I realized that they were actually being held, and this is a term I use, hostage. They were being held hostage by, by memories that would pop up and by a sense that they couldn't navigate with the hostage taker, which is the sexual grief. And I give you that preamble because how I define sexual grief, and I'm going to repeat it twice, it's a natural response to an unnatural sexually traumatic event or experience that leaves you feel like you are being held hostage. Sexual grief is a natural response to an unnatural 
sexually traumatic event or experience that makes you feel as if you are being held hostage. Okay, so that is a very succinct definition, I think, uh, for a very complex topic, because when we're talking about, you know, a traumatic event, and then there's a loss of some kind, if you're experiencing grief, it could be loss of self, loss of um, intimacy, as you mentioned, uh, loss of innocence, and and lots of other things. So where there's where there is where we're using the term grief, we must be experiencing loss of something. Right. Where there is grief, which is what we talked about in our last two meetings, which was just so much fun to be able to share with you and 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 share with, with all of you who are listening um something that we can't really avoid, which is which is loss and grief. And and the sexual grief component is one which the reason I say experience or event is because it's something that can be it is a response. And it is a response to an event that is outside of our control, like abuses of all kinds mm-hmm. that are come from someone else. It's an external experience, but an event as well that can occur because you were born as an unwanted child or because your first sexual experience was shameful or humiliating or you were brought up in an extreme religious home that told you it was bad to to have pleasure or that it was bad to touch yourself or you know fill in the blanks and so you grow up having um messages that frame the way you think of yourself and what that can often lead to the humiliation the shaming the guilt is self-loathing and self-disgust. And there's no pretty way to point this out. And what we're talking about today is really hard, and yet it's hopeful. Because when there's an accurate label, then we can begin to heal. Yeah, I feel that's true. Uh, Having an accurate label, having something to kind of pinpoint to say, yes, this is how I'm feeling. Or as you said in your kind of your description or definition, the thing that's holding you hostage, you know, being able to identify that thing, event or experience is so liberating in itself um, and probably one of the first steps towards um, healing and recovering from a traumatic experience, especially for survivors of sexual violence and abuse. Um, I would I'm just curious if a lot of the folks that you work with who experience what you identify as sexual grief, are they often survivors of sexual assault, rape, domestic violence, or or other uh, types of abuse? Absolutely. And part of the issue around describing this topic is that the response is one that anyone who fits the event or experience that leaves them feeling like they've been taken hostage or held hostage is is my audience. And so, yes, I have a lot of people who I see and work with who come out of sexually being violated, violence within the home that are of a sexual nature that are uh, are of a physical nature or an emotional nature and how that fractures the ability to feel good about the self. Let me also though share that those early developmental experiences like the unwanted child or the person who has a bad first sexual experience where they are humiliated, you know, within the school and therefore drop out of school or feel that they can't get close to another human being. And it takes a minute, it takes one second of a, of a bad experience that can really change someone's life. And I'm sure that everyone listening gets that. They really, I'm sure that you do. The thing is, is that there's another piece to this, which is when you've had those early fractures, what happens often is when anyone gives you what looks like attention or love, 
you might go toward that. And then that turns into the situations where there is violence or where there is abuse. And it can start from that early shaming experience that was developmental. Yeah. I mean, that certainly corresponds with a lot of the reading I've done on, on the topic uh, related to history of abuse and people who, who've lived with um, abusive partners who use this kind of pattern of abuse to shame, manipulate, further abuse, and so on. Uh, you know, a, a victim of domestic violence or, or sexual violence. Now, to look at this a little bit of a different way, I've read that sexual grief can be a type of disenfranchised grief in that it is often hidden or goes undisclosed, you know, something that we just would rather not talk about. And that, you know, this is a very, again, complex topic or question or term, if you will, because it's really peculiar to me in the world that we live in, in the culture that is all around us, there's so much discussion and advertisement about sex or of a sexual nature. Pornography is highly accessible. Fashion and style are largely focused on what is sexy, particularly for or marketed to women. But then there's also (laughs) this remarkable silence when it comes to talking about our personal sexual experiences. And it's also a, a taboo on discussing anything related to wounds of sexual experiences or the grief related to sex. And even using the word rape at times is, is just considered not wanted or um, really too horrifying to, to even speak the word rape. People will joke about sex openly, you know, on social media, everywhere, on on the shows you watch, uh, uh, on TV. It's everywhere. They'll make all kinds of jokes about sex. They'll advertise it and, and so on. But when sexuality becomes connected to emotions or feelings, especially negative ones, people are hushed or or we just silence ourselves. And as I said, you know, the the words can be too hard to say out loud when an experience is that that significant to an individual. It's so true. It's so true, Maria. So so you gotta tell me that. what's going on here. What what is why can we talk about sex when it's funny or advertise sex or look at images of it, but then when it's damaging, we run away from it. Maria, I want I'm wondering if you've ever heard about comedians and and this is not cross the board, but that many comedians are angry and that they use their comedy to kind of obfuscate their, their, their anger. I haven't heard that, but okay. I I can follow that. Yeah. So when we're uncomfortable about something, we like to joke about it, right? It's a way to kind of help us conquer perhaps our fear or our discomfort or our anxiety, or um, our ignorance around the topic. It sounds like avoidance. Yeah, it, it, can, it, it can be avoidance. And yet we do find ways to bring humor into that which is, you know, sexual or sexy. Mm-hmm. You know, we are um, primitive beings. And though we don't want to think of ourselves as primitive beings, we are. And we can laugh about something we can have por- pornographic outlets, which for some people who, let's say, have disabilities, that pornography may be the only way to understand their own bodies because they've got nobody to talk to. And yet the way that it is often used is to hurt and to humiliate. And certainly what is seen pornographically has sadly given people a dysmorphic perspective on bodies, mm-hmm. on the way they look at themselves, on what intimacy or good sex even looks like. And a lot of, a fair amount of the pornography that's out there, you know, will verge on things that are hurtful or violent. And sadly, that is being mimicked. What we can do about it is educate ourselves, 
is to say, okay, that's one way of showing an option to sex, but that is not about love. It is not about intimacy. It is very much a performance element that really leads people to feeling worse about themselves than better. And um, sadly, you know, it is, um, we, t- we talk about disenfranchised grief and you brought that up at the very beginning here of, of, of your very full comment. And the disenfranchised grief is a grief that society does not necessarily think of as a grief. And it is not believed to um, even um, be thought of as a loss that someone would need to deal with or cope with or understand. And so as a result, it is often ignored, as you said, it's avoided, as you said, it's also not labeled. So, you know, some people laugh at the grief that that one will feel at the loss of a pet. People will say, well, what do you mean that if I was adopted, I might feel grief? And, or if there's, I've had sexual abuse in, in my life. Well, no, I was assaulted and I feel traumatized, but where is the grief in that? And we can see that as less than disenfranchised grief and much more as, you know, uh, an accepted formula for where grief is. However, it is often, grief is often just uh, ignored and avoided because we don't want to go there. And this really is a full circle conversation here because what we're, what we're talking about is that which we don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about the wounds that people carry. And those wounds show up in many, many different ways. And so why can't we talk about the hard stuff like rape, like violence, like not being wanted as a child? Because we don't have the ability to tolerate what we have no control over or what makes us feel that we have no control. Yeah, I think, I mean, I can follow what you're saying. I think sometimes the brain is not ready to accept, you know, a traumatic experience. It needs to put it in the back somewhere and process it later. I think we know we have the capacity to heal from trauma, but we have to get to the right places and the right people in order to allow that healing to begin. Um, It sounds a little to me from what you describe like our, I want to say our socio-emotional intelligence has not evolved to the point where we fully understand some of these situations as a presenting as grief. Does that make sense? Yes. I love actually how you created that formula. You know, sometimes it's like when, um, like when I just asked you, is it socio-emotional intelligence? Is that the right term? I'm not sure. I think it is. But sometimes we just haven't found the words yet to, or the way to word this, string the words together to figure out exactly what we're experiencing. So another way to look at it, society, in a lot of ways, we we do not act like we are evolved, um, but in other ways we have really evolved like through technology and that's become very complex. And so we are, we're constantly trying to catch up with the terminology of uh, what all of this technology can do and what it's made of. And, you know, if, if you, um, if you're living here in the 21st century, everything has an acronym, right? And so you have to, <laughs> you know, every day it's like some new acronym, AI, AR, um, IOT. I mean, do you know what IOT so is? Right. I, I, kn- I know what IOT is. <laughs> um, it's Internet of Things. But um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to evolve emotionally and how we interact with each other and how we understand our own experiences and reflect upon them. And our language is also evolving. And so trying to get those things to kind of merge together and say, oh, this is this was not just, and I, I don't mean to minimize it. This was not simply a sexual assault. This was a, a complex experience that wherein I I was vulnerable and I was violated, and I, I even though I received an action, a criminal action against me, I also lost something, and that yes. loss may look a little different. That's right to different people. That's correct. And it doesn't look the same, really, almost to 
to anyone. I mean, our grief and sexual grief is like your fingerprint. It's as individual as you are and, and you will feel it and integrate it based on who you are. And what, what I know is that if someone has been sexually violated and there is sexual violence or sexual abuse as part of their histories, that they first, before they can even look at the sexual grief, they first have to feel safe enough within sure. themselves. Yeah. And they have to create some level of trust with whomever they're going to be working with. And hopefully they're working with some professional or group that supports them in the, the process of healing. And it's only then that the, that, that the sexual grief conversation can actually begin to um, flourish. Yeah, I could see that unfolding maybe later, unless someone walked into your office and said, I'm experiencing a tremendous sense of loss. And, you know, you have to dig into it and find out that this was related to some type of abusive experience. But I also want to make the distinction that someone pointed out to me recently on this podcast. He explained the difference between grief and mourning. And I think sometimes for some of us, we may be stuck back in the idea of mourning, kind of that outward display of what grief is or, or can look like, as opposed to the inward or, you know, the self-reflective aspect that is grief where I'm suffering on the inside and you may not see it. And I may be doing that for a very long time, depending on how significant the loss was to me. Absolutely. And it's such a good thought. I just want to add to this, which is that grief can look like a lot of other things. It can mm -hmm. look like your anxiety. It can look like depression. It can look like an eating disorder, you know, and I could go on and on. So I just wanted to add that to what you were already saying. I think that's an important thing to add because, and just going back to this evolution of kind of the human psyche and our emotional development, we have to, you know, we may not be at the point at human beings where we are evolved enough to look at situations and know people well enough to say, ah, there's something more going on here with this individual. Um, unless we are very close with a person and have a very close relationship, um, like a mother-child relationship, you know, often mothers can look at their children and say, something's not right today. You know, Absolutely. He, he or she hasn't even said a word to me and I could just tell by the vibe or the energy or the look in his eyes that something's yeah, wrong. Yeah, the look in the eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that um, getting to know ourselves better inside and out would help us better understand others in the same, possibly in the same way. And then really be able to, to deal with the concept of grief, which I think is something that nobody really wants to talk about. But once they have to talk about it, they're already on the journey of grief. That's true. They're already on the journey. The thing is, is that prior to the pandemic, people really thought that grief was just a response to the loss of a loved one. Mm -hmm. I think that what the pandemic has done is actually allowed us to open up the conversation about grief and how um, how it can be expressed in a variety of different ways for a variety of different reasons, including being stuck in one's home and not being able to get out uh, is certainly a grief response. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think we're still in it. And I agree. We're avoiding it as best we can as a, yeah. you know, as just human beings. And we want to magically make it go away, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's not going, there's no magic here. We're not going to magically go, have it go away where we can't wish it away. We've gone through what we've gone through. And just because mask wearing has been lifted does not mean that we're not walking around with the vestiges of having experienced that time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, th it's something I think a, a lot about. Um, and, uh, you know, like when I'm out in stores shopping or whatever, <laughs> I look around. Some people still wear masks, which I, you know, I, I fully support your decision to decide if you want to mask or not mask. But I look around and think, wow, I can't believe we're not all wearing masks because it just feels like yesterday it was, you know, this requirement. And I, when I was, when we were in it and wearing masks and, and walking around uh, in public, I didn't think we'd ever get out of it. 
I kind of felt like, well, this is our future. You know, we're always going to be wearing yeah. these masks. And um, I don't know why I felt that way. I don't know if anyone else did, but it, it just seemed like this is what we have to do to survive. This is what we're going to do. So there's, there's something that you, that you just said that I think is really important about, you know, feeling like this is my, this is my new ordinary. This is how I'm going to be living for the rest of my life. We yeah. had no prep time. There was no warning. There was no, okay, so this is going to be coming and we want to prepare you. It happened like a trauma happened. Well, that's very true, but it was also buried, I would say. I would say that there some people had an inkling and wasn't yes. shared with us. So that I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but if we reflect back on the months of December and January uh prior to the, you know, the real full-blown announcement in March of 2020, um there were signs and there were signs before that that, you know, this type of thing could happen again. And so I'm not trying to discount what you're saying. You know, often a trauma will hit us between the eyes. Like we didn't realize this person was going to attack us when we were walking to our car or that our intimate partner that we just married last week is now going to become our abuser in our own home, in our own bedroom. You know, some of those things really can blindside you and you feel foolish you feel ashamed and embarrassed and you don't want to talk about it, you know, if, especially when it's... And you go into hiding and you become reclusive and you stop seeing people and you you just... And that almost, sounds like mourning and it sounds yes. like grief. Yes. Is there a difference That's in the right. terms of like feeling bereft and experiencing grief? Is that the same thing? I, I think of bereft... More like mourning. It's like just an kind of overwhelmed. Experience. Yeah, kind of feeling like, oh, you know? like that and physical. The grief that, right. And that internal grief, again, you know, we've just been talking about it. It it doesn't get exposed. And to go back to sexual grief, it it's sexual grief is 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 like a mask. And it 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 hides. And it hides, it hides within the soul. It hides within the mind and the brain and it hides within poor functioning or disgust. It hides within depression or anxiety. And sometimes the best way to see, well, where could this be hiding is to create a timeline of experiences developmentally to the age you are now and say, hmm, where, where was I hurt or where did things change in my life? Or when did I stop feeling hopeful or that life was not worth living or that I wasn't happy? And those are the kind of areas where you can start to see and ask the question, did whatever happened here affect my sense of self my loathing, my ability to be intimate, my ability to be successful at work or at school, or even to forge ahead with relationships. Yeah, I think that's an interesting approach. Um, And it it makes me think about like journaling and writing as well. Are those methods something you would include in your practice, like having people write or journal or uh, just to kind of Sometimes when you when you start writing about these experiences, especially when it's just for you, you know, and you don't want to share them with someone else and you're just trying to work through something, you can have incredible revelations about about yourself and others and your experiences and and sometimes find these little points where, you know, you need to take another look at something or you need you need Absolutely. to work through something. Absolutely. I'm a big advocate for journaling, but and actually taking pen to paper and writing because Physically, we know that yeah, in the, the physical brain, act of yeah, writing. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. The the physical act of writing actually does something to release what's going on in your brain. And you mentioned the brain earlier. The brain is one of your greatest allies. You know, what what happens when the when 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 the brain and the amygdala, you know, begin to feel the need to protect and the nervous system is right, right in there with the, 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 the chemistry of the brain. We need to help the brain feel that 
you are communicating to it that you're safe. And part of the way to communicate you're safe is through breathing, is through self-regulation. When, if you know, if you uh, have survived violence, sexual violence or sexual abuse, you know, to be able to take those times when you are feeling just completely out of your body or dysregulated or you've lost time in your day and you come back and it's really scary or you want to go back home, but you don't have a home to go back to because it's not safe anymore. All of these, these, these situations are uh, dysregulating and to teach the brain, oh, you know what? I can re-regulate. I can reclaim myself by just little things like breath, breathing. If you feel this is a counterintuitive little exercise that I teach all of my peeps, which is if you feel anxious and you feel like you can't catch a breath, what I want you to do is let out that breath and take in a breath and hold it for like the count of five and then let it go. And what you're telling your brain is, oh, well, if I can hold my breath, I must be breathing. Yeah. You've given us a couple of tips in the past um, as well for how to kind of help self-regulate yourself when you're having these moments of anxiety. And I think they're really interesting because um, when you talk about breath in particular, when you feel like you're going to lose control, when you've had an experience where you had no control, where you were being abused um, or sexually assaulted, and your control was gone or felt like yes. it was gone and, and someone else had power and control over you, the one thing in, that you might be able to control in any moment is your breathing because you own that and it's going to happen one way or the other, you know, you're either going to be conscious of it or, or just kind of the involuntary act of taking it in air that's and exactly letting it right. out again. And so yes. I've actually personally tried this. And that's why I wanted to keep talking about it was because, you know, there are moments in everyone's life, um, whether you're a survivor of sexual violence or domestic violence, or you're a survivor of something else, um, or you're living with grief and maybe you don't even realize it. But I personally have have tried this, um, what you spoke about, about holding your breath or controlling your breath, doing serious breathing exercises, because it does speak to me and say, I own this. And yeah. if I can it's own- It's mine. It yes. belongs to me. Yes. And, and I nobody control can take it. it away from you. Ex- exactly. Well, in most cases. <laughs> well, um, in most cases. But, I, and, uh, and there is that caveat. Yeah. It's so true. But yeah. for the most part, um, most days, most moments of the day, we can control our own breathing. And so I do know for me personally, it has been a kind of life-saving at times, so to speak, in that if I can control that and I can reset myself for a moment or five minutes or even longer, then I can regain some control over a situation that feels like a monster, you know, hiding under my bed. That's exactly right. Because when you lose your breath or when you feel as we've been talking about the shame or the, the disgust or the, even the loathing or the, 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 the just the, the fracture within your own life that to be able to say, you know what? I'm reclaiming myself. Right. I am reclaiming myself. And if I can take in a breath and hold it for 30 seconds and let it go, I'm 30 seconds in to saying, this is mine. Right. This is mine. The other thing that's yours is your fingerprint. And no one really can take that away from you. And so that's another new, actually, piece that I've started to concentrate on. Oh, tell us about that. I want you to look at your fingerprint. Okay, I'm looking at at my fingerprint. Yeah, I want you to look at it. And I want you to try to look at it if you can get some good light. And as you're looking at the ridges, just say, these are mine. And no one can take them away from me. And they belong to me. And they make up me. And each of these ridges are kind of like a labyrinth. Yes. I love labyrinth. Right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been talking a lot about labyrinths lately because I see that sexual grief is kind of like being in a labyrinth. And a labyrinth is broken down into two very specific types. There's the maze. And what the maze does 
it's, it's a lot of stops and starts, dead ends. And then you start again and you turn around in a different direction and you try that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the goal of the maze and the, the next thing I'll describe, the meander, is to get to the center of the labyrinth, which is metaphorically your core. Mm-hmm. So when you are feeling like you are in survivor mode, and I actually call everyone survivalists. Yes, we than talked about survivor, that before. Yeah. Right? I know. Right, right. So the survivalist is that you have your core. And when you get into your core and that core self, you have the evolution of the soul and of the self, and you have ownership. The ownership can also begin with, again, looking at that fingerprint and saying, this is mine. It's mine. And no one, no one can take this away. And the meander is going around and around and you think you're about to get out. It's like you think you're about Mm -hmm. to be safe and then you realize you're not. And then you go around and around. And what happens though, is the more you go around in that circular movement going in and out of the labyrinth and the the, the in is getting closer to the core, the out is kind of leaving the core. And that's when you start to lose yourself a little bit. That's when you get afraid. You can then go back in and you go, okay, my goal is to get to that core. And this is an exercise that can be done over and over and over again. Because sexual grief, the hostage negotiations, is is first to be curious. And what's the one thing we want to avoid is our curiosity. We talked about it in terms of why don't we want to talk about rape? Why don't we want to talk about um, abuse? Why don't we want to talk about the things that hurt us sexually? Because we believe that if we just push it away, somehow it will, it's magical thinking, just disappear. Yeah. And it can't, it can no longer hurt us. No, that's right. But this is the thing. And we talked about this the last time we met. Anxiety gets bigger the more we push it away. Right. Anxiety decreases when we say, oh, here you are. I'm going to meet you head on. Mm-hmm. Welcome into my space. And you know what happens when we actually invite it in and we become curious? It loses its power. Right. Right. I mean, I, I can agree with all of that because I, I think I've experienced some of it like in my own way. Um, and so hopefully people are getting the sense that this, you know, that a little bit more of the idea of what sexual grief is and um, how all of these things can lead to a grieving process and how we can get on the other side of that. Okay. So we talked a little bit about um, the brain. I just want to uh, briefly go over what really is going inside going on inside our brains and bodies when we experience sexual grief? What is happening in our bodies is the sense of fear. And it is as if the nervous system has completely shut down. And when it shuts down, it's like you cannot move, can't think straight. It's just complete chaos. No one feels safe. and you are like in quicksand and the more quicksand, you know, the more you fight, the deeper you go. Mm. The idea here is by re-regulating yourself, not feeling so um, dysregulated. And the only way to kind of stop that dysregulation is by saying, okay, so this is holding me hostage. That's the point when you begin to feel like I am being held hostage and I can't get out. And that's when you're inviting the brain to be curious, to ask questions, not to come up with any resolve, but just the curiosity alone actually allows new neural pathways to form in the brain because sexual grief is is a neural pathway that got formed in the brain and it can look like a lot of different things. And we're always forming new neural pathways. We're always um, dealing with the old neural pathways, but what science and neuroscientists have shown us time and time and time again 
within these last 10 years is that we can recreate those new neural pathways and we we have the chance to grow create new memories and new hope for healing yeah and i think uh, i'm really glad you brought up mazes and labyrinths because i've read a lot about that actually and how healing those can be and how they can help form new neural pathways as you mentioned in the yes. brain by by walking the labyrinth and so either yes. it's maze or meander that can be incredibly healing. I love this thumbprint idea. And I, I think I think it would be interesting to kind of a self-reflection process, even if you're not healing from grief, to have an image of your own fingerprints, you know, whether it's just one or all, and have it kind of blown up so that you could actually trace it uh, with your finger, which is also, which is just as good at times as walking in a labyrinth. Um, for for forming new neural pathways and inspiring creativity and all kinds of things. So these are exercises that are not limited to grief and healing anxiety and healing trauma. They also can do wonders for for lots of other aspects of our personal development and brain. But um, I've heard you talk about, or at least I read about, um, the need to rebalance ourselves when we heal from these experiences, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So it's a, I think I call it, I use balance and I also love to use the idea of calibration mm -hmm. and the idea because, and, and I'll tell you why we, we, we refer to balance and I'm going to get back into balance so often and so much that sometimes a word has less power when we use it over and over again. And so to I, the idea of the calibrated state feels to me like the seesaw and as kids playing on the seesaw and getting to that place that is balanced, but is so completely calibrated because our feet aren't touching the ground and we're using our cores mm -hmm. to get to that place where there's total calibration and being in sync. And it's very delicate as well. It is. It's delicate. It's mindful. It's present. Because one of the things that sexual grief, domestic violence, abuses of any kind cause us to feel is that we are not present. And I, I did mention in, you, you know, the previous shows, I am a survivalist and I come to this work not only because of my education, but because of my own life experiences. And so the idea of losing presence and coming into presence is something that I work on all of the time. And I call it within the brain, the Swiss cheese effect, that we have holes in our brains it's like Swiss cheese where the holes are the empty spaces and the dark places that we have yet to remember. Mm, that's a great metaphor. But these are not literal holes. They're figurative, correct? They're figurative, yes. There are no holes figurative. in your brain. Don't worry. No, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no. If anybody thinks that I'm talking about holes in your brain, I am absolutely not talking no, about no, holes No, no, no. I, I didn't take it that way. But I was like, well, maybe I should just clarify it. There's no hole no, in no, your no, brain. No, that's good. <laughs> but there are... Um, recesses, if you will, of the mind mm -hmm. that we have not yet explored. And when people have repressed uh, traumatic experiences, those recesses are trying to get your attention, right? And, and want to be explored and they want to be healed. Yes. And it is the brain's way of protecting the self. Those, those metaphorical kind of holes um, are there because whatever was experienced cannot yet be remembered. And it is the brain's way to care for the soul of the injured and abused self. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, of course, you are the expert <laughs> in this, in this area, not I. Okay. We're running out of time and I, I hate when this happens, but, um, what can we expect from your new book, Sexual Grief, and when might we get to read that? 
So what you can expect right now, it's interesting because at the very top of the show, you talked about liberation. And right now, my working title, because I don't exactly know what the title is going to be, but the working title is Healing Sexual Grief, Reclaiming the Self from Loathing to Liberation to Love. I think that's really beautiful. I think that that's a, a journey that uh, a lot of us might might want to take, right? And I look forward to reading the book. I have your your original book called It's Grief, which is full of helpful information in the discussion of grief, in the exploration of the grieving process, of understanding yourself when you are grieving, which if you, you know, some reach a certain point in life, we're all grieving over the loss of of someone or or something. And it can be a long process as we have discussed. That's right. Um, That's right. It can be a long process. And my hope is that by the end of 2024, it will actually be out. And I'm doing a lot of things around it. I just did a webinar March 9th, which was uh, last month. I'm going to be doing free webinars every couple of months. I'm putting out YouTube and videos, giving everyone little, you know, bits and pieces about grief and sexual grief. So there's a lot of ways to um, become part of this conversation. Yeah. And I appreciate you giving us a uh, first look here in this conversation about the topic that's going to be covered in the book. Any other events coming up that you think people might be interested in? Well, I'm really excited about this cruise that's happening in September, September 10th through the 16th. And it's an inner voyage empowerment cruise for women. Now, that doesn't mean you can't bring your partners. Uh, it just means that whatever you decide to sign up for in this empowerment cruise, that it's going to just be for women. Otherwise, when we're, you know, docked, you can do whatever you want to do and you can do whatever you want to do, even when we're at sea. But what you'll get, I'm, I'm keynoting. There are groups. There are really wonderful, um, medical intuitives. There are people there that are really talking about healing. And so I hope you'll look into it. All you have to do is go to my website and it's right there, front and center, ednathan.com, E-D-Y-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. And if you sign up, I think right now there's like a hundred dollars off and uh, please mention my name and uh, I hope to see you there. So where are you cruising to on this trip? So it is the Grand Cayman Islands and Mexico and Bimini, which okay. I believe is owned by the, the cruise line. Oh, how exciting. And you had yep. told me uh, in a previous conversation that, that there's a cap on the number of participants, right? Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we are only um, taking in 100 people. And uh, the reason for that is we want everyone to feel seen and to really feel that they are part of something empowering for themselves. So it's not going to be an overwhelming amount of people who are attending so that everyone gets seen and you can work through things that you might not often work through. And you know what? There is something very, very special about the water. It is mm. about evolution. It is about seeing emotions clearly. The water is so powerful. It's about movement of, you know, your heart and your brain and your desire. That again is another a beautiful metaphor, uh, which makes so much sense to me because you, when you said there's something about the water, I was like, oh, fluid, everything is fluid and can, uh, and it's mutable. So it can be changed over and over again. So anything can be healed, um, in kind of thinking about that process as water. Anything can be healed. I've done about 10 grief cruises over the years. And what I've learned each and every time, something a little bit different. But the last cruise, we had a very small group. It was only about 20 women. 
And from that group, those women's lives completely shifted and they were able to forgive the people they needed to forgive. And they were able to actually let go of some of the grief that was holding them back from experiencing joy in their lives. That sounds incredible. Um, It sounds like an amazing opportunity. I'm so glad that I got to talk with you again today on this topic, and I wish you much success with the book and the upcoming cruise. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Maria. Attention Spanish-speaking listeners. Listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish-speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes, escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. Learn more at genesisshelter.org slash donate. Thanks for joining us and reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org o por llamar o mandar mensaje de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-4357. Servicios bilingües de Genesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un texto para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.